Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Creative Pursuits podcast. And do we have a great episode for you today? So, on this episode, we are going to announce the winner of our review contest. As you know, we have been running this contest for the last two months. Basically, whoever leaves the best review, we will read it on the podcast and they will win a very special prize that has been donated to us by our sponsors. So today's the big day. We're going to be announcing the first winner of this of this prize, and we're going to be doing that at the end of the show. But we, we are going to keep this contest going. So make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Review us on Apple Podcasts, and we will, like I said, keep it going. Your name, your review may be read aloud on a future episode of Creative Pursuits. So as exciting as all of that is, I, 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 I can't deny I am most excited about our guest today, Katie Kwan. So Katie is a dancer, choreographer, and researcher. She graduated with high honors from UC Berkeley she was a visiting student at the University of Oxford, Katie is currently a PhD candidate in mechanical engineering at Stanford University. She's blended her passion for dance with the very innovative field of robotics. So what what drew me to Katie, what made me want to bring Katie on the show is a friend of this podcast, uh, a, a man by the name of Dirk Wallace, gave me, he recommended me this book. He, he lent it to me. It's called The Infinite Retina. One of the authors of that book is Irina Cronin, who is going to be a future guest on this podcast. And it's it's a book about basically the, the, the future of technology and more, more specifically spatial computing. So AR, VR, robotics, all, all of these things kind of fall within the purview of this book. And one of the people that they discussed was Katie and her work, basically, like I said, blending robotics with with robotics and dance. So I immediately read that and I kind of was like, hmm, that sounds that sounds interesting. So I sent Katie an email and she was nice enough to to join us to talk about her work. So I'm excited to share that conversation with you. Before we get to that, I am going to tell you about our aforementioned sponsor. That sponsor is Team People. So if you are looking for top talent in the most current production disciplines, you should know about Team People. Their specialty is creative services, and they can equip you with the specialized creative and technical talent you need to complete your project on time and on budget. With a production background and focus on forward-facing production technologies, they can help you with the critical skills necessary at every stage of the process, from development to execution to marketing and more. If you're thinking about harnessing the power of AR or VR, or you want to get into podcasting, any of these things, Team People has the recruiting team with the knowledge and experience to find the talent you need they work with big studios, 
brands of all sizes, development studios, in-house agencies, and independent production companies. And with a scalable model that can provide a single person to augment the team you have in place, you or they can help you build out an entire team. So really whatever you're looking for, Team People is there, they can help you do it. So join forces with them, Team People will go to work for you. You can find them online at teampeople.tv. They're also on Twitter, you can check them out at Team People TV, no doubt. Uh, no dot, that is, sorry, no doubt, no dot, all of it. Let's get to my conversation with Katie Kwan. I grew up in the Bay Area in the 90s, and I was born and raised in Berkeley. And I, Megan Smith refers to my generation as digital natives, so people who have very few memories before the internet. And we had a e-machines personal computer when I was in fourth grade that my dad bought with dial-up internet on AOL. So the kind of internet you probably remember where, yes, you can't be speaking on the phone while you're using the internet. And it was first, firstly, like having that experience when you're, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old, I think. And growing up in the Bay Area really showed me the scale and immediacy of like the nascent personal computing plus internet amalgamation. And yeah, at the time I had been dancing, I've been dancing my whole life. I mean, since I was probably three or four in different classes and settings and things like that. But I just remember so distinctly that experience of having the internet at my fingertips as being really transformational and wanting to work in a technology related field when I grew up, so to speak. And when I went to college, I went to UC Berkeley. I was dancing in college, but my two of my three parents are immigrants and the sort of like first gen pressure of taking a very predictable known career path was there. So when I graduated, I actually didn't have any plans on being a professional dancer. I thought I would do consulting, which is what I did after I graduated. Um, but I had interned at Google a couple of summers in college and felt like I had a really strong literacy when it came to using personal computers and like a good awareness of um, what was happening in terms of trends on the internet. And so I graduated, I moved to New York City. I, after I graduated from Cal, I was working in consulting and auditioning on the weekends and dancing and choreographing as much as I could and sort of had the stars align and like a number of fairly big dance jobs fell into my lap. And it seemed like if I was going to pursue being a professional dancer, that would be my only choice. You know, dance tends to have a pretty strict expiration date on it. Um, so I decided to leave that full-time job, started dancing, and also at the same time wound up becoming a vice president at a web design company, which was a very small company, but became extraordinarily successful in the couple of years that I was there. So I was like already balancing this dual career of being a professional dancer and then designing, creating websites, mobile apps, all that sort of stuff. And felt like I lived in these two different universes, you know, right. some, and not only in terms of practice. So what you actually have to do, you know, when you go to dance rehearsal is a very different animal than like writing HTML, 
but mm. also things that were motivated by very different ideas or ways of working, different structures. The sort of artistic communities that I was a part of in New York we were really under-resourced, like dance is sort of notoriously under-resourced. And yeah. at the same time, I felt like there was this huge population that had the possibility of making great dance. And we were like underutilized because the resources and the, the places where you could pre present your work were so few. And uh, so I started to think about how to bring my sort of like dance and technology practice together and was experimenting with video and produced a couple different evenings of dance where you know multidisciplinary artists who were using cell phones in their pieces or things like that could present their work and then went to this conference called the Conference for Research on Choreographic Interfaces, which is choreotech.com. And that conference is run by a man named Sidney Skybetter up at Brown. And super unique, like one of a kind type of community with artists, industry folks, researchers and academics coming together to talk about dance and, dance and, right? Dance and motion capture or dance and augmented reality or dance and spatialized audio. You know, they were like really on the fringes. Right. Um, and in that community, I wound up with my first robotics and dance residency with a woman named Amy Leveres, who is running an organization called the Robotics Automation and Dance Lab at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And that was in 2017. So that was now four years ago. That was my kind of first exposure to robotics and dance. When that happened, it was like a light had gone off because I could program a robot and interact with it. And it was this like closed loop experience of integrating this practice I had of making websites and, and writing code and this other practice I had, which was dancing with people and stuff and uh, put it all together. And it wound up being addicting, inspirational, very hard. <laughs> and, and so I figured, you know, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. How do I keep doing this? And it seemed like there were a lot of robots in grad school. So now I'm at Stanford and uh, getting my PhD in mechanical engineering and thinking about a lot of the same questions that I've thought about for the last several years with dance and robotics, but doing it in a research capacity and really feeling incredibly lucky that I get to be a part of a place like Stanford where, you know, the world is your oyster. You can explore every corner, every facet of these two big topics, which are robotics and dance. It seems like there really was no other destiny, I guess, for you. I mean, out of college, you were balancing these two things. You clearly have a very high degree of ingenuity. It was only a matter of time until you just smashed them together and you know, forge this, this new path. I'm curious, what kind of, what kind of, what kind of dance is it that you, that you grew up doing and were doing all throughout college and then, you know, beyond, is it modern dance? Is it a more classical form of dance ballet? I like that you say it seemed like a foregone conclusion to smash them together because I think it's actually a fairly modern. I think there are going to be a lot of people who use dance and technology increasing like exponentially many because of the way that we can sense bodies now that we couldn't before right with like wearable gyroscopes and your apple watch and low-cost 
body tracking from OpenCV and all of these ways that we can utilize information from the body. And that's what dancers, choreographers have been thinking about for hundreds of years. So I actually think there are going to be so many people who are smashing all of those different types of dance with something else together in the the future. And for me personally, you know, my dad's Cuban and there's, he makes this joke that's like, if you don't know how to dance, you're not Cuban. <laughs> like you probably, you're like, yeah, borderline, you know, or, um, right. If you don't, if you don't have rhythm, it's like sort of a precursor for, for saying that you're from Cuba. Right. Um, so I think we grew up, you know, social dancing a lot in my family, like all of the traditional Cuban, like stone and salsa and all that stuff. Um, I definitely took tap jazz, ballet, contemporary, musical theater, hip hop, et cetera. And then in New York was mostly doing contemporary dance. And I think that means a lot of things to a lot of different people, <laughs> but yeah. yes, mostly contemporary dance. Was there, was there someone that you, I mean, I know Martha Graham, Merce Cunningham, Eric Hawkins, Alvin Ailey. Was there someone in particular that you looked up to from, from like on the dance side who you tried to emulate? Bill T. Jones is a hugely influential choreographer for me. He is so visionary. And I saw a piece that he did at Zellerbach Hall when I was in high school, probably. Zellerbach Hall is the local performance house in Berkeley. And it was a series of 60 second snippets where he would speak and narrate and his dancers would move around in a sort of abstract realization of his words. And then the timer would ding and they would move on to the next one. And the stories that he was narrating were really quite unusual. And he was sitting at a desk at different intervals and then he would stand up and he had such a glorious presence. I mean, he was performing, I'm not quite sure how old he is. I don't want to mislabel his age, but that was probably 10 years ago and he was still performing and held the stage like any young dancer coming straight off of 15 years of highly technical training. So I think Bill T. Jones for sure was really influential. Trisha Brown, she's known for these very swing-like, almost pendulum looseness, freeness in her joints. I saw them perform a number of times in Berkeley. And then when I first got to New York, my fiance is an actor like all and all of his friends were young working artists. So we spent every weekend going to tiny black box theaters in Brooklyn, Manhattan and Queens and seeing their shows. And that was really informational for me too. Of This is the type of work that my contemporaries are making. And right. it's both inspiring and terrifying, <laughs> but um, it just gives you a finger on the pulse of what other folks are thinking about. Well, what was it like being a part of that that post-collegiate underfunded art scene in Brooklyn while you are one dancing and two, you also have a job at this, I guess it was a few years cause you were working at Google but then you were working at this kind of burgeoning web development company. Um, what was being a part of that community? How did they kind of foster your own artistic instincts and, and, and kind of push you forward on, on your journey? I would say the dance the way that I participated in the dance and tech community, the overarching sensibility was this one of total scrappiness and also community. 
because when you don't have all of the expensive robots immediately available at your disposal, you make a lot of, you make your own robots or you call a lot of people who have expertise that you don't have and you piece together some sort of a project. And there was so much community that post-collegiate, as you said, moving to New York City, glomming onto this existing art and tech community. And those communities are grounded in certain spaces, right? Like IBM and Pioneer Works and even Triskelion Arts and these other places where they allow you to present your work. And a lot of times on a split bill. So you'll be on a split bill program with two or three other pieces and all of them are super different and it allows you to see a lot of dance and see dance from many different corners and genres. And so I think for me that like glomming onto that community and feeling like I was a part of that community, I remember thinking, I don't really know what my thrust or my cracks or my points of investigation or my central questions are. But as long as I'm in this world with these people making work, you know, churning stuff out the door, I think I'm going to get to a point where a lot of these separate interests coalesce. And that's definitely what happened. So how did, I understand you you were coding, but how did mechanical engineering enter into the fold? So I think a lot of, I'm, I shouldn't speak to the great and long history of engineering because I don't, I don't have a great and long history in engineering, but I think I knew I wanted to go to certain places and I wanted to work with certain people. And then the department was a little bit of a secondary consideration. So, you know, thinking about coming to Stanford, I knew I wanted to work with the woman who's now my advisor, Alison Okamura and Osama Khatib, who has done quite a bit of work with human motion recognition and dance actually and robotics. And, you know, Larry Leifer at first, who also does a lot of work at the sort of intersection of creativity, perception of autonomous agents, that sort of stuff. And so then I thought, well, they're all at Stanford and they're all in the mechanical engineering department, so I should apply there. And mechanical engineering, like a lot of engineering fields, like electrical engineering and computer science, I think has grown and adopted lots of different sub skills, even though you're in a kind of broader umbrella community. So for example, I do take quite a bit of computer science, mechatronics type courses and design courses, even though that's doesn't fall within, you know, fluid dynamics, which is considered like a very OG mechanical engineering field or, um, yeah, I think there's, there's definitely blending even within the department. Wow. So now that you are at Stanford and you have coalesced these seemingly to a layperson like myself, completely disparate dancing and robotics. You mentioned some some of these these questions that you that you wanted to that came up through doing this work. What are some of the questions that you hope to address and answer um, through the through the work you're doing at Stanford now? Most robots for several decades have existed in prefigured or limited hidden spaces like factories where they are far away from people. Most industrial robots, that's 
where they have existed so far. And really in the last few more recent years and decades, robots have started to move into other sorts of spaces, whether it's parks or living rooms or hospitals, offices, grocery stores. And the big difference between where they have been and where they're going is where they're going, there's a lot more people. And my definition of choreography is a set of constraints imposed on a moving system that results in action, right? So you, most of the time that moving system is a dancer, it's a human, but you could put a same set of constraints on a swarm of birds and it would result in some sort of action and you would have choreographed those birds in in my definition of choreography. Uh, William Forsyth, who's an extraordinarily famous choreographer and has sort of done every canonical piece (laughs) in both ballet and kind of like robotics, has a paper where he talks about the choreographic object and he says that the practice of choreography is extremely different from the performance of dance. And I really agree with that. So if we take that assumption that dance and choreography are two different things and that choreography is the imposition of constraints on a system, you have something that's not that different than an optimization problem for a multi-agent system. And maybe that multi-agent system is a set of robots instead of a set of moving people. So the types of questions I'm interested in now are how can we create expectations or constraints for a moving robot system that allows them to navigate efficiently, safely, and effectively around people? For example, how can we build an interface to control robots at a distance that allows people to be less tired when they're doing it or allows people to have more fun while they're controlling robots at a distance, for example? And, and I think for me, like all of that stuff is falls into this category of human-robot interaction, human-commuter interaction, uh, robot design, like end-to-end robot system. Design maybe is the right word, like end-to-end robot system thesis, like, you know, how do we want the robot to be in the world, which I suppose is an HRI problem. But those are the things I'm thinking about now. How can we learn from people in order for robots to move more efficiently? And uh, I don't know, most of the answers to those questions get picked up like in teeny tiny, very narrow scientific experiments. Sure. But those are the things I'm broadly interested in. Something that I find fascinating is I've seen people talking about how years from now, once robots, robotics and artificial intelligence are more developed that people will look back on the way that we, we treated robots with the same kind of disdain that, and dis, uh, that people look at, um, you know, any kind of, any kind of like prejudicial uh, actions that one group ta- takes, has taken towards another throughout the history of humanity. How does artificial, does artificial intelligence work its way into your work? How do you, do you, is that, is that something that is a part of this or you foresee being a part of it at some point? Yeah. And I'm sure your audience is very savvy, but I think one thing I spend a lot of time doing is explaining that 
robotics and AI are actually two separate fields. <laughs> right. um, I think they often sort of get conflated, but you can think about what, so in my definition of a robot, a robot is something that senses the world around it, does some computation, and then does an actuation or creates some sort of action as a result. And, and then I, I would argue the sub definition or the secondary thing to consider is that it's not something else first. So my iPhone, for example, can sense my voice. It can do some computation and realize that I'm speaking to it. And then it can speak back to me. So that's like a, but an iPhone is an iPhone is an iPhone. So it sort of doesn't perfectly fall under this like robot category, but in the very loose terms that I've defined it. Whereas even though Roomba is a vacuum, I think most people would make the argument that it's a robot and it, it's run by a company called iRobot. And all of which is to say the kind of AI or the artificial intelligence that happens in that equation is in the computing facet of those three parts. And right now I'm doing a little bit of work about as I described, how can we learn from people to get the robots to move more effectively and specifically move more effectively around people. And that involves a little bit of learning from demonstration, which is a type of imitation learning, which kind of falls into like the supervised learning category. And, you know, it's not wildly magical in terms of like all of the different types of machine learning that are out there, but it is pretty interesting to see how you can adapt some of these methods to a series of robotics problems. And, and we're using imitation learning, like we're using a form of supervised learning in this particular research project. We definitely considered doing a sort of like one-to-one -one mapping and not using a, a kind of learning. Um, but I think the learning is gonna be, anyway, I could get into the nitty gritty of that project, but it, it will be maybe be less interesting for your audience than the kind of question that you've asked, which is about the ethics of treating these seemingly autonomous objects as more or less human. And well, for me that asks, that like gets at this bigger question of whether or not robots are conscious. Um, like Yuval Noah Harari has a lot of talks about why he's a vegan because, you know, animals can experience pain. And so eating or taking advantage of something that can experience pain is like to violate their consciousness. And uh, I don't believe that robots are conscious. I think we don't even really know what consciousness is sort of a very loose. I think the last, the last class I ever took in college was philosophy of mind with John Searle. And uh, we sort of talked about the difference between like a dog, a robot and a person and like how consciousness manifests in the three of them. But the people who have done some really interesting work on this are folks like Kate Darling, who writes about, you know, thinking of animals in the same way that we're thinking of robots in the same way that we think of animals. And so I'm not sure. I also don't think I've ever mistreated a robot. So I think my, my guilty conscience is fairly clean. You know, most of the time I'm just like using robots for a very limited number of hours and not asking them to do anything that they aren't designed to do. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think folks like Kate Darling have, have definitely done a lot more research on the topic. That's awesome. When people listen to this podcast 150 years from now, they'll be the ultimate arbiters though, I guess, uh, on, on, for both of us. Um, we do this segment at the end of the podcast called Media Diet, which is just a fun, loose 
a uh, few questions. So first off, are you, what are you reading now? Have you read, and have you read anything recently that particularly piqued your curiosity that you found fascinating? So right now I'm taking deep learning with Andrew Neg and Kian Katan. Oh, I always forget how to pronounce his last name, but it's a class and it's incredibly well put together, but more so because we look at a lot of examples from the real world of sort of how, for example, last week we went over how would you validate if someone should enter the gym at Stanford or not based on their picture that gets scanned and, you know, how many pixels would you need in order to make a good decision about that? And you realize there are so many creative choices involved in the design of different AI systems or different deep learning systems like this, where along the way you could apply a different activation function or you could use a different baseline in order to compare your model against. And it makes me feel really creative actually to take that class. So that's been very inspiring for me is this deep learning course that I'm taking. And over the holidays, I started Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind. And he's a like famed Berkeley author. And uh, yeah, I grew, well, I told you this, I grew up in Berkeley and I went to Berkeley. So it's, I'm a hardcore Berkeley nerd, but he's a famed Berkeley author. And in the book, he talks a lot about psychedelics and his sort of like own journey through some of these nascent uh, substances, some nascent, some not so nascent. And then Melinda Gates, um, I just read her book, The Moment of Lift, which is about working, you know, providing very basic uh, health services for women in developing countries. And you know, my friend Lisa Einstein works at the Stanford Internet Observatory, and she just put a paper out with a couple of collaborators in Scientific American about making cell phones more accessible to people who are illiterate. There's 700 million people on earth that can't read and also can't use a lot of the speech agents on certain cell phones because they don't recognize African languages. And so you realize like where people point their focus, both in Melinda's work and also what Lisa Einstein shared, like where people choose to spend their time. Um, those are the types of problems that get solved and thinking so much about the impact of research. So that's been really inspiring for me lately, those sort of four, this class I'm in, Michael Pollan, this book from Melinda Gates and, and Lisa Einstein. And then um, I've also been like on a hardcore survivor binge lately, which I think is like definitely a manifestation of spending so much time indoors and being like, what would it be like to live on an island? <laughs> Does it have to like climb obstacle courses for rice and beans? Uh, those are the things that have been keeping my attention. So two, two things just kind of about the, well, one, and we've gone, I've gone way off course in terms of providing like a linear experience uh, for our listeners, but one, well, first things first, does it feel like a hyper-competitive, you talk about Survivor, does Stanford feel really competitive to you being there and being around these other students, or is it just a more kind of a nourishing environment similar to what you had in the art scene back in, in Brooklyn? I would say it's a healthy mix of both for sure. Um, I, like a lot of people, was incredibly intimidated by this place and really anxious about my abilities <laughs> in the months leading up to starting school here. And 
I have met an incredible peer group of people that I can work with, both from a research point of view and with my classes, who are all mega brilliant and we we find ways to support each other, right? So that's that nourishment piece that you were talking about. You know, people in my lab, people like Lisa, right. who I've met and taken classes with. And I would say, you know, there's certainly like in any place where people are hyper type A and want to do well in school, there's certainly a feeling of wanting to do well, but I never felt like those things were mutually exclusive. You know, I, I, I feel extremely supported in my work, both in my lab, by my advisor, by my peers, and, uh, and at the same time, very aware that it's challenging and you've got to put the work in and it doesn't, you know, courses don't just finish themselves. <laughs> you, right. you have to do the homework. And so there is a very, I would say it's a nice, healthy, healthy mashup of all the things. And I'm extremely lucky because I have a partner, you know, my fiance, Cameron, and my family is very nearby. And I have a huge number of people in my life who support my work. And I think it would be even harder to do this if I was isolated. Okay. But there's no like survivor level backstabbing going on. You're not you're not building alliances to, you know, take, take other people down, anything like that. Not that I've experienced. No. And I mean, research is inherently collaborative, right? You have to use shared resources. You have to publish together. You'd be very open about your work. You know, I employ the lens all the time of the sort of like pour the water in the ocean and all the boats rise, whatever that metaphor is, (laughs) but the sort of like shared, shared rising tide Right. It's all boats. Certainly. Right. So I, and also we've, we were supposed to have now entered the media diet phase, but I'm, I'm, I'm very wishy-washy. I'm, I'm curious. I have to ask you just to, in an effort, my own care to, to fulfill my own curiosity and trying to live vicariously. What was it like growing up in Berkeley? I feel like that must've been such an interesting place to, to, um, to grow up in. Yes. It is. (laughs) I think uh, lots of friends of mine actually tease me for how much I glom onto how wonderful Berkeley is. So it's this sort of like weird utopia of super quirky people where you can be whoever and do whatever you want and incredibly diverse. So I went to Berkeley High, which graduates a thousand students a year, includes people from every single walk of life. I mean, it's the only public high school in Berkeley. And so I took, when I was in college, I took West African dance. I took Spanish. I took Bible as literature. I took a Westerns film class. It was just the offering was so expansive because you have so many people and its proximity to the university creates this culture of intellectual interest, but novelty and open-mindedness and exploration. And also like pretty raucous, you know, my friends and I were pretty nuts growing up and our parents were down because, you know, they're like a lot of former hippies <laughs> and just right. sort of want us to live and explore and see what type of people we want to be. So I think there was always this pressure of, yeah, pressure to perform because I'm in this first generation kind of family, but also being in close proximity to a hyper open-minded exploratory creative place. And those two things, I think, opened the door for me to want to pursue my passions in a very real way. And the other thing I should say about Berkeley is like a lot of the Bay Area, it's changed so quickly, right? It's gentrifying even in ways that are not fully observable. I think when I 
grew up in the Bay Area, you know, first of all, it was like just on its face, even more affordable than it is now. But I also think there was a sort of, there's a culty like Bay Area-ness to growing up and being from here, like every local town, you know, folks, friends of mine who grew up in Brooklyn all have this kind of like culty Brooklyn mentality. Friends of mine who grew up in Detroit or Atlanta or Pennsylvania or Philadelphia, wherever. And Berkeley is really that way. It's like very culty <laughs> if you grew up from Berkeley. Those Berkeley townies are on a whole other level. <laughs> yeah. And I think because there's so many transplants, you know, like like there always have been because of the university, but there's even more, more so now because of how much the Bay Area has changed. I think it's a losing a little bit of that cultiness of that kind sure. of like yeah. insularity. Um, and the other thing that you have to talk about if you talk about Berkeley is the food. I mean, it's like the thing that everyone yeah knows <laughs> loves does eats enjoys what are what are some of your so what are some of your, some of your favorite spots i went to that i don't know if this is like a cool place or hip or or what but i went to that cheese cheese board yeah have you been there yes the cheese board is iconic and everywhere on that strip uh like chez panisse and the french yeah well, it used to be called the French Hotel, and now I think it has a different name, but there's like a big cafe, and Gregoire has been there for a really long time, and uh, that whole stretch is is very well known. The coolest, like weirdest place is this place yeah. called Thai Temple that serves Thai food on Sunday mornings. It's literally made by um, the people who work in the temple, and it's only Sunday mornings, and you have to pay with coins, okay. which is on somewhere off of MLK. I don't even know if they still do that anymore, but that was like a real... Berkeley thing for a while and uh what else besides Thai Temple yeah oh Vicks in Berkeley is a big one it's in West Berkeley it's this like iconic Indian restaurant Picante Gordo's Gordo's actually was like the OG uh burrito like walk up Chipotle style like tell them what you want type of thing that's been in Berkeley for 30 years probably Cactus is the same with Mexican food. So lots of really fun, iconic, long-term food. Got it. I got to check those out next time I'm up there. And um, one other, I know someone who actually worked at Chez Panisse. Shout out, shout out cousin Carolyn. But this is, I want to get back to talking about you. Um, Do you you read fiction or watch any like narrative streaming shows or movies? So my fiance is an actor, which means we watch stuff together we just watched tenant last week and what else have we seen recently that's more narrative i don't know tenant uh all right katie well i really appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking with me this was so cool really fascinating and uh i hope you have a great rest of the week yeah you too take care alex All right, folks, there you have it. That was my conversation with Katie Kwan. You can check out more about her in the episode notes, and I highly suggest you do so. She's got a lot of really cool stuff going on. I also want to thank Hideout Hill for providing the music for this podcast. Okay, and now is is the moment you, I know, have been waiting for, and I'm glad you stuck around. I'm going to read this review First of all, so we had a runner-up. This was this was a this was a I don't know if this is the runner-up, but one of our more recent reviews. This is not the winner, but I'm gonna go ahead and read this person's review off anyway. It's not gonna take very long. 
the title is Great Podcast! Exclamation point. And the author of this review, five stars by the way, was SS Ilverb. So SS Ilverb reviewed the podcast. The title is Great Podcast! Exclamation point. And the review reads as follows. Great podcast, exclamation point. I highly recommend it. Two exclamation points. Thank you, SS Ilverb, for your kind, your kind words. Uh, succinct, I like that. It's, so the winner of the of the contest is JBED1203 or JBED1203. And the title, the title is actually cut off here, but I believe it says refreshing discussions on media. So that's the title. This is, too is five stars. Thank you for your graciousness, JBED1203. And the review reads as follows. Absolutely astonishing production value that drives home sometimes hidden messages of success, perseverance, creativity, and technical fortitude in an underrepresented technical vertical. The way Alex engages with his guests is captivating and keeps listeners anxiously awaiting the next episode. Don't miss out on this one, exclamation point. Wow, Jabed, you flatter me, you flatter us, and you have won yourself a very special prize that you can find on the goodies page at Creative Pursuits Podcast. Dot TV. Folks, if you want to follow in JBED1203's footsteps, you can just review us on Apple Podcasts. And yeah, the, the bar has been set. The bar has been set. Thank you very much, JBED. Before I let you go, dear listener, I want to also thank Hideout Hill for providing the music for this podcast. I want to thank our team, our sponsor, our sponsor. I mean, I want to thank the whole team, obviously, but I also want to sponsor, uh, excuse me. I also want to thank our sponsor team people for their, their support and for their generosity in providing us with our wonderful giveaway items. And last, but certainly not least, I want to thank you, dear listener, more than anyone for being here and lending your ears and your heart to us. We will see you next time. This has been the Creative Pursuits Podcast. So long.